You're listening and watching Rashkin Report. This is Yuri Rashkin. Thanks to everyone who is supporting this channel on Patreon. You are my heroes. Um, Patreon is, is an important platform that gives opportunity to support this and other worthwhile projects and also allows you the opportunity to offer questions for our guests. For instance, today we have several interesting questions uh, for my today's guest, who is none other than Vladislav Inazemtsev, one of the most respected and well-known economists today in Russia and from Russia. Uh, Vladislav, thank you so much for being part of this broadcast. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Well, we have a lot of questions. Uh, first, let's begin. What is your response to January protests in Russia and to the, the punishing reaction to it from the government? Is this good for economy or is this doesn't affect the economy? Look, it's uh, uh, the sources and the origins of the problem are, of course, uh, they lie in political sphere. Uh, and so therefore, I wouldn't say it's, uh, it has a crucial importance for the economic development because many people try to argue that, um, you know, that uh, foreign investment will uh, evaporate, the, the investment climate goes down. But actually, the investment climate is so bad in Russia and uh, the economic perspective of any foreign investors are very, investment is, are very uncertain. So I do not, um, I wouldn't say that uh, all these political developments will affect uh, too much uh, the economic environment uh, in, in Russia. Uh, of course, it might be some kind of um, financial problems because if you look on the budget, on the balances, balance sheets of the Russian banks these days, you see that the Minister of Finance mobilized a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, funds uh, from the banks, from uh, from its own accounts in the state-owned banks. So uh, the overall uh, amount of money which is on the accounts of the Russian banking system decreased almost twice, almost by half, from around four trillion to a little bit than more than two trillion rubles just in two weeks. So therefore, maybe in this case, uh, the budget, the Minister of Finance. Uh, and its actions uh, affect somehow uh, the, the economic stability, and it will cause a little bit of, you know, the trend to for uh, rates to increase. But I, even this development, I think is quite uh, quite short term or maybe medium term. But in general, I do not expect too much to happen because of this process, because I think they will actually slow down in coming weeks. All right. Um, how do you view the role of Alexei Navalny in this and also the response to it from the United States government and world community? Navalny was nominated now for Nobel Peace Prize. Do you see this as um, um, a promising development or more of a, you know, a PR? I, I don't know. How do you look at this? Uh, look, uh... Navalny is one and only person responsible for this uh, turnaround because actually he is a very brave guy, uh, very devoted to his cause. And um, uh, he initiated all this investigation, all this anti-corruption activity many years ago. And so, of course, it was his poisoning. Of course, it was his return. And of course, it was the release of this investigative movie uh, he produced about the Putin's uh, palace on the Black Sea coast that uh, actually blown out the situation. Uh, so therefore, of course, Navalny is the major figure behind this protest. The second point is how predictable was the sequence? 
of course, it was predictable because everyone knows in Russia that uh, Navalny was informed just a little bit before the new year, uh, New Year's Eve, that he is uh, on the list of the search people, the wanted people in Russia. Uh, so it was a clear signal that he should not return, but he returned. So therefore, uh, I would say there is no justice in Russia and there's no judiciary system completely. It is completely destroyed. And it was destroyed, I think, from the time of the Yukos processes against Khodorkovsky in mid-2000s. But nevertheless, uh, so therefore, the Russian leadership uh, had no other option than to respond with um, arresting Navalny uh, on, upon his arrival and then uh, of uh, jailing him uh, to give him a real sentence uh, for two and a half years uh, yesterday. So therefore, I think that this was predictable. Uh, the, last, uh, the last part of your question, ah, response from the Western community. Look, uh, I would say that uh, response actually can be very limited because you have some laws uh, adopted in the United States and internationally, like for example, the famous Magnitsky Act, uh, which uh, actually enables you to punish some people immediately or directly involved uh, into uh, you know, prosecution of uh, you know, political figures or uh, unlawful uh, prosecution of businessmen or whatsoever. So therefore, I, I completely agree that definitely the United States government can uh, put some people from Pol Moscow Police Department Minister of Interior, some judges who actually handled uh, Mr. Navalny's sentence uh, to this uh, sanction list. And this will be a natural, uh, natural response to, to the situation. But uh, when I uh, got the information that one of Navalny's supporters and his close aides, Mr. Ashukov, uh, sent to Mr. Biden the list of 35 individuals who, can, who should be sanctioned after this incident, I actually cannot believe that something like this may happen because uh, there's no connection at all between Mr. Abramovich, a wealthy Russian guy who owns the Chelsea Football Club in London, uh, and Navalny imprisonment. So, therefore, to say that because my friend Mr. Navalny is now in prison, you, Mr. Biden, should sanction Mr. Abramovich, it's a pure nonsense. So, therefore, the next point is that, of course, the United States, I expect them to react much more intensively uh, on something uh, coming from Russia affecting the American security and the American domestic problems. For example, when you hear that some Russian officials or Russian mercenaries are uh, talking about, uh, you know, giving some money for uh, Afghan uh, fighters who uh, kill American soldiers, this is actually a huge accusation. And this is actually, it should be uh, on the radars of American foreign policy, as well as, for example, if the Russian hackers uh, are interfering into, uh, you know, American dat databases. But what happens actually in the streets of Moscow is, I would say, a secondary issue uh, for the American uh, for the American po 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 policymakers. I think the people will, here will be much more concerned with, for example, a military coup in Myanmar uh, than of what is going on in Moscow streets. All right. Um, well, that's that, that about sums it up. Vladislav, um, how do you look at the situation in the United States itself, uh, considering from the first point of view that you have 
such huge uh, flood of money coming in connected with uh, the pandemic. You know, right now we're talking about $1.9 trillion. Um, and uh, second, just a general uh, you know, decline in number of workplaces because we have greater uh, automatization and modernization of our production. Um, it, you know, it's, how do you see American economy in this context? Look, in general, I'm quite optimistic uh, because, um, first of all, if you take this into the historical context, uh, you see that uh, one time after another, American economy successfully recovered from different crises. And actually, uh, as I studied the theory of post-industrial society and all the technological progress quite intensively for years, I read a lot of texts and books uh, from late 60s to 70s predicting that, you know, the unemployment rate by the year 2000 will be around 30% and then even higher. And this will be, you know, a uh, long-time unemployment, long-term unemployment that cannot be actually successfully, uh, successfully overcome. Uh, but the problem is that actually nothing like this happened. Uh, and American economy, where several branches, several industries actually completely disappeared during these years, uh, it managed to, uh, to set up another industries and to, get, uh, to produce huge, huge uh, demand for workforce. Uh, if you look, if you compare the American economy, for example, starting from 1973 uh, till 2010, I don't know about the most recent statistics, but for this, uh, uh, you know, um, around 40 years, uh, the amount of workforce employed in the American economy increased by around 40%, while in the EU 27, it increased by maybe 6-7%. So this is a absolutely huge difference. American economy produces much more work, uh, work, uh, new jobs than, uh, than any European economy does. So therefore, I think that uh, this now, now is the moment of truth for the American economy because uh, the pandemic uh, showed that, uh, reflected that many types of uh, ordinary businesses uh, can be actually, you know, reframed these days. For example, I, I expect very huge blow for years, uh, which will be done to the uh, uh, airline industry because uh, there is not so much need in traveling uh, for business as it was before, as was considered before hotel industry, and of course, uh, the commercial and office real estate, they will be actually hit very hard. And uh, in, this, in all these cases, uh, I expect some huge trends, new trends to appear in coming years. But in general, um, you know, most of the industries, uh, they will not suffer too much uh, after the pandemic regulation or the pandemic, the, the quarantine is lifted. So. Uh, this is a, one uh, part of the question. Another part of the question is that, look, we cannot, uh, even now we cannot uh, evaluate uh, entirely how big and how influential uh, this uh, injection of money, uh, of money that was printed by uh, Federal Reserve and authorized by the federal government can be. Because uh, I expect that, uh, what is obvious uh, is that, um, uh, you know, uh, the investment rate, the savings rate uh, ratio uh, exploded uh, last year, and uh, the, the the net wealth, net worth of the American uh, uh, American citizens, American uh, households, uh, also uh, increased 
even despite uh, the uh, contraction in, in GDP. So we saw a very special situation because I can't remember any other year when uh, real estate prices went up uh, during the GDP decrease. So uh, it's, we are in an entirely new world uh, produced by this new monetary policy, you know, modern monetary policy, MMT, uh, like some people used to say. And so therefore I will be very, very cautious in predicting some long-term trends. So, but anyway, does, does it in, mean in, that the ideas of George Bernard Keynes no longer apply? Uh, I think so, because Keynes, uh, his uh, major ideas uh, were uh, targeting, you know, the uh, interest rates and uh, actually the budget deficit. And now we see uh, actually the negative or zero negative interest rates, which can be a long-term new uh, trend in, in the economic activity. And if you uh, don't pay anything for uh, borrowing money, uh, so the amount of the money borrowed, the amount of the national debt actually doesn't matter at all. And this is absolutely new situation compared to anything we saw before. So Okay, but it, I'm just trying, you yeah. know, it, your understanding of this is far deeper than mine. Um, but my understanding of Keynes was that the government has a role to play and by stimulating private markets, it can move the economy forward and be an important, useful player in the, in the economy and the consumer economy. Am I completely wrong? Or, no, no, or? You, are, you are right. And so this this feature, it, it, it is, uh, you know, it, it may be found even now. And the policy is actually alongside uh, this uh, this theory, but the problem is in numbers, uh, from my point of view, because uh, Keynes never anticipated the idea that uh, the government can pay negative rates uh, for attracting debt. So this is um, a matter of of, uh, of amount of, of the money which can be brought into the economy, and therefore I would say uh, in, in the times of Keynes, uh, the issues of, for example, of stock markets were quite not so important as they are now because uh, the, um, the valuation of American stock market uh, even before the great crash of 1929 uh, was maybe less or so, around 50% of, of GDP. Now we have 180% of this valuation. So a, lot, a huge amount of national wealth uh, is put into, uh, into this uh, stock market, into all kinds of assets, which are actually much more expensive than they were ever before. So this is a new reality, I would say, and actually the consumer economy and the consumer spending are now much, uh, uh, make now much less part of the national wealth as before. Uh, also, uh, I would say that uh, the, the idea of inequality, which is actually very much exploited by the Democrats and socialists, uh, has also very different meaning because everyone, uh, like people like uh, uh, Casio Cortez or Mr. Sanders, uh, they are talking talking and talking about the huge income, uh, the huge um, financial inequality. But uh, if one looks, for example, on, you know, how much Bill Gates uh, or Elon Musk earned last year, uh, it's enormous uh, sums of money. It's around $100 billion uh, that uh, Elon Musk made uh, during 2020. But at the same time, if you look on personal consumption, it's absolutely different picture. Because uh, Bill Gates, uh, you know, gets more than two million times more money per year than average American, but he consumes maybe twenty thousand times more, and the difference is one hundred times. It's a very huge difference. And 
I, I wouldn't say that uh, the IRS should tax, uh, you know, the incomes. Uh, I, I think that much more just option is to tax the consumption. And this, this can make a lot of difference in, in future economic development. Isn't taxation on consumption a tax on poverty? Look, uh, this is a, another idea we can debate, but uh, look. I'm, I'm just like, this, this is no, so fascinating for me, but we have other no questions, problem. but go ahead. No, they are, but look, uh, for example, uh, we are in a world which differs a lot from the world of 1970s, because in the 1970s, you might have an opportunity to create a company in BVI, but it will take you a lot of money. You will travel there, IRS will see on everything what you are doing there. And so the offshore economy was very, very small. After the Panama Papers were published, you can see that you know there are no not hundreds of billions, there are trillions of dollars there every year. So therefore, I would say that uh, now the national the nation states, the, the governments, they have very few, uh, very little possibilities uh, not to control all this, and the money will flow out and out of the American economy as well as the German or German and British or whatever. Uh, after President Trump announced his tax reform, as, if I'm not mistaken, uh, only one company called Apple uh, brought back around 350 billion dollars back to the United States from their offshore jurisdictions. So. The, mo the most important issue is not taxing the rich, is to bring out back the money which are now not working in the United States. And if you switch the taxes from the income taxes, from the payroll taxes to property taxes, sales tax and whatsoever, you will create a very huge, the, the biggest economy of the world can be an offshore economy de facto because in this case, you will have no any motive uh, for taking money out of it. Moreover, a lot of foreign money can flow in if you don't have, for example, payroll tax and the tax on income. It's, you know, it's absolutely different issue, but uh, what the countries in, uh, in the world of the 21st century would be com uh, will compete uh, in will be the best place to invest money and the best place actually to earn more money. And uh, the idea to raise taxes is actually uh, something which leads us to a kind of a dead end. All right. In that case, speaking of dead ends, uh, let's take a look at, uh, in conclusion, Europe and Brexit. Uh, how do you see uh, consequences for Great Britain and for the European Union? To what extent do you see London keeping its position as one of the main world financial centers, global centers? Uh, look, it will depend. Uh, I, I would say that uh, London was um, uh, played its role as a financial center, not because it was a part of the European Union, but predominantly because it had uh, more uh, flexible tax jurisdictions and tax laws. And um, actually, the business environment in Britain was uh, much better than in France, for example. Uh, and this uh, matters at the time. Now, of course, many, many companies, many financial companies, banks, will turn away from, uh, from UK uh, for, if they operate in Europe, they of course will choose either Frankfurt, uh, maybe Amsterdam, uh, in some cases Paris, but definitely more Amsterdam or Frankfurt. And therefore, uh, UK can suffer some kind of capital outflow and what's, uh, something like this. But um, I think a lot of uh, a lot of trends will 
uh, depend on what the British government will uh, do in, I would say, in foreign policy field in the coming years. Because actually, uh, you know, the uh, United Kingdom was for years kind of a, a link which united uh, Europe and America. And therefore, by losing this, uh, I would say, this status, uh, Britain will try to find out some other uh, connections to, you know, to the world. Because uh, with its history of global power, I think it definitely will try to find some, uh, some new global role for, for itself. And I think that uh, we saw some kind of, you know, uh, signs that it might be, you know, special relationship between uh, UK and Turkey. UK and post-Soviet space like Ukraine. Uh, and uh, I would suggest, it's just my suggestion, I just uh, published a huge article on this in a French leading foreign policy uh, journal, which is called uh, Politique Internationale, uh, in February last year, suggesting that what the British should do uh, is to revive uh, the EFTA, uh, the European Free Trade Association, which now formally exists till now under the Vardas Convention. And um, so therefore, if UK produces a kind of another block, freight free area between itself, uh, between Switzerland, between Norway, between Turkey, Ukraine maybe, or uh, countries in the Balkans. Uh, so in this case, it might be, you know, to speed Europe, which was highly debated for years, uh, both in Brussels and in London. And in this case, uh, UK can find its new role uh, and uh, the Europe can actually uh, breathe uh, quite more normally because it will not be abused by the ideas of enlargement. And so, so there are a lot of different combinations in, in this field, but um, actually I'm absolutely sure that the British will try to find their new place uh, in the after Brexit world. Ladislav, I think it's a fascinating possibility for a new global British empire that involves all this other economic uh, connections from all these countries that maybe are not quite in this Alliance, uh, not quite I, I, that alliance. I, I, I am not. Uh, yeah, I am not very optimistic on this in, in the case because uh, I would say that if you want to, uh, the Brits uh, to do something in absolutely different way, just publish your advice in France. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vladislav Alexandrov, Russian academician, who is the director of the Moscow-based Center for Research in Post-Industrial Societies. Uh, nonprofit think tank. Uh, thank you so much for being part of this stream. It was great to talk thank to you. you. And it was a great, it was a great pleasure. Thank you.